<laughs> Sorry. Okay, it's May 2nd, 2017. I'm with Zave Marto Harjono at, uh, in Crown Heights, and uh, I am about to record an oral history with them uh, for the New York Trans Oral History Project, which seeks to record uh, the lives of trans and gender non-conforming folks as as uh, they they tell and and uh, remember their their experiences okay I'm going to um, I think I'm going to start with uh, if you could tell me a little bit about where you were born and what that place was like okay. <coughs> um, I was born in Montreal in Canada in 1984 um we moved from canada to the states when i was a toddler so i don't have much of my early memories of montreal but the city has shaped my life in many ways because my um father's uh first kid uh lived there her whole lives there now still and has lived there her whole life and we've traveled a lot back and also, my parents met in Montreal, so we have family friends there. So Montreal has always been another home for me. But um, I think I also sort of take pride, I guess, in the fact that I wasn't born in the U.S. And my family comes from different parts of the world. My father's American. My mother is Indonesian. Um, but it always sort of feels significant to me that um, even though I am Americanized and grew up in the U.S. since I was two, um, there is this other perspective, you know, and there is, and it comes both from, I think, the fact that my family emigrated to Canada, <clears throat> my Indonesian family emigrated to Canada um, in the 70s, um, and so... I definitely have like a North American perspective for sure, but I also think about the way that Canadians think about things, not just the way Americans think about things. And I think like living in and growing up pri primarily in a U.S. context, there's such a limited, um, not in New York, but like outside of New York, there's such a limited understanding of the w of the rest of the world. So yeah, I feel lucky to have been born uh in a different context, like in outside of the U.S., and also to now live in New York, which to me is a, a global city, you know, so I feel like I'm protected within the, <laughs> within the U.S. I'm sort of exposed to so much more than just U.S. culture. Um, but yeah, Montreal is both a place that I do know somewhat intimately through my family that still lives there and friends who live there. Um, but I didn't spend a lot of time growing up there. And um, can you tell me then um, a little bit about your parents and what brought them to, or at least what brought your mother to Montreal? Yeah, so my mom was, uh, so my mom's family has a really interesting history of, of where they live they're Indonesian um but grew up she grew up mostly in Europe and her brother and sisters grew up mostly in Europe so 
through um, Germany when they were little and then Rome and then uh, Vancouver and then she came to Montreal I think she and my aunt came to Montreal uh, for university so it was for her undergraduate degree that she went to I think she went to the University of Montreal and um, and yeah and she happened to be there and then my father was is American and moved to Canada I can't remember when he moved to Canada but anyway he sort of has a somewhat I don't know he has sort of like a politically like a contested sort of political relationship to having grown up <clears throat> in a, a low-income working-class white um, suburban um, town outside of Boston so he moved to Canada at some point when he was young um, I think as an escape from yeah what he like sort of had trouble with in the United States um, but and I think he sees it as like a political act <laughs> um, and then yeah my parents met in a bookstore what do you know much about that story can you that's all I know <laughs> all I know is that they met in a bookstore um, and I actually am not sure what my father was what you know what he was doing for work um, or whether he was studying but I know my mom was studying and um, what um, where did you go after you you were born and you spent your you know toddler years in Montreal where did you move to then we moved to Ithaca New York uh, so my mom is an academic and we moved to Ithaca and she got her uh, she started a PhD program at Cornell and then from Cornell uh, uh, we moved to Boston where she started teaching at MIT and then my parents got divorced um, when I was nine I believe and then um, my mom and I moved to Queens. We moved to New York, and so I've lived in in New York ever since I was nine. And um, do you have any siblings? I do. I have a half sister um, who I didn't really grow up with, except for a few years on my f my father's first child. Okay. So um, tell me a little bit about uh, what life in in Ithaca was like growing up. Um, I think for little kids it was pretty idyllic <laughs> uh, we lived in the student housing like a student housing complex um, and uh, I remember you know it was sort of a suburban kind of situation there were there was a complex with lots of apartments and apartment buildings but I remember there was a little brook behind one of our apartments and um, also I think because maybe because of the community that we are in because we were in a sort of student academic community it was pretty international um, there were a lot of immigrant families and academic families from different parts of the world so I remember it being very um, 
I'm sure it was predominantly white, but I don't remember it being predominantly white. Um, and I remember, yeah, I remember having a very like um, lots of friends from different parts of the world. I remember my my very little friend <laughs> when I was very little was Sri Lankan. Her family was Sri Lankan, and um, yeah. So uh, I guess. Um, kind of the funny intersection of, of, you know, families who come to the U.S. to study and sort of the international aspects of, of university life. Um, I think I was much smaller, so I think my half-sister had a different experience. She was a little bit older, um, <clears throat> and I think she had, I think she had a different experience, kind of maybe a little bit more aware of small-minded, small-town, small-minded kind of mentalities. Um, but for me, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I remember lots of outdoors activities, going to all the waterfalls, and um, there was a, like an old-school um, health food store not like whole foods but pre whole foods um actual health food store and i remember like walking in there and like the smells of all of the nuts and you know very very granola style hippie ithaca deal yeah <laughs> and and what was um elementary school like for you for you there so elementary school was, I guess, when does elementary school start? In like fourth grade or fifth grade? It's For some, like yeah. First grade. Oh, first grade? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. Maybe. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was in the first grade when I was in Ithaca. Um, I know that I started school there because I remember the day that that I went to school and I did not want to separate from my mom and it was it was pretty dramatic. I like threw a I threw a whole fit. Um, so I'm sure I went to kindergarten and first grade there. Um, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember a ton about school. I just sort of remember. Yeah, the challenge of starting to go to school. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so here's a question: as as you were uh, growing up, I guess, like pre high school, we'll say, because mm -hmm. um, that's generally more <laughs> memorable for people. <laughs> um, as you were growing up, can you give me a sense of what what ideas about you know being a boy or being a girl or whatever mm -hmm. you know you were exposed to and what kinds of messages maybe you grew up with sure I never so I'll say this with the context of I'm sort of transgender genderqueer identified you know um, born female and now sort of present masculine but also genderqueer um, it never occurred to me until my early mid 20s what what gender meant i never thought about my gender in a conscious way well that's not really true i 
understood and experienced sexism and understood and experienced my body as a woman's body and never ever had a doubt about that until I was in my early 20s. Um, so, and also I think my relationship to gender is like very, I have a very empowered relationship to gender. So my mom, who is, you know, uh, like high femme, power femme, amazing woman, you know, she, she imbued a really proud sense of, of her gender as a feminist woman. And so I always looked up to that and I never, I never doubted my own, I never had any questions about my own gender. I knew myself to be her daughter and my father was also very proud of having three daughters. So he has, um, you know, uh, two biological children and then one children from a previous marriage, um, uh, child from a previous marriage who he took care of. So he always, you know, like has so much pride about like three daughters, you know. And it never occurred to me. I mean, I remember, I remember the moment when that thought happened. It was really more around college. And even in college, um, and it's so interesting, just identity, because I think my awareness of my racial identity and my ethnic identity was so clear from the start that being mixed race, um, there was consciousness at the very, very beginning of my life because you sort of have two families and you're, um, you're kind of outside on both, on both sides, you know? Um, and also the exoticism, I think, particularly plays a part for um, Asian folks, um, but I'm not even necessarily visibly identified as Asian. So there's, I mean, there's so much around race and ethnicity that has always been very clear to me. So I think gender queerness came in a way as a second wave, like as an afterthought, and more as I was older. Um, so when I was in college, for example, uh, I had friends who identified as genderqueer and I would say kind of trans-ish. So not necessarily in, this, in the same sort of strong stance that I see now, I think with, you know, especially with young transgender people, there's really, a, there's really um, no, um, no hesitance to claim trans identity or genderqueer identity. Um, but I didn't have a sense of that. And I really think there is a shift generationally too, because I remember, this is not necessarily around gender, this is more around, you know, sexual identity. But I remember in high school, basically all my friends were queer. We were all queer and we were all sleeping with each other. And we all had these really romantic friendships with one another. but there wasn't necessarily the, the clear identity politics of what it meant to be LGBTQ. But I remember when I was a senior, I had a friend who was um, a junior and he was out and, um, you know, identified as out, identified as gay and was sort of the, like a lead organizer at the, at the GSA, you know, 
And I remember just that. I think there's such a clear generational difference just of one year where sort of the consciousness of organizing and wrapping that with your sort of relationships and your personal identity all become so so much clearer. And I look at younger generations now and I see, um, you know, I see that they're such a different, they're growing up in such a different context where gender queerness is um, part of, you know, part of the vocabulary, talking about trans experience is part of the vocabulary. So for me, my questions around gender, first the awareness came in, I think, when I was in college. And then it took me, I would say, about seven years to actually situate myself as trans-identified. So kind of later into my 20s. So when I was in my early 20s, um, I moved home from college and um, just was in queer community in Brooklyn, mostly in Bed-Stuy. Um, I came back here and um, just like, you know, just out of sort of, you know, partying and political organizing and just all kinds of different sort of community um uh yeah like there was this really strong I mean maybe I'm nostalgic but there really was this like strong sense of queer POC predominantly POC community in Brooklyn and I moved back to Brooklyn I moved to Brooklyn because I grew up in Queens I moved to Brooklyn when I was I guess 21 22 so like 2006 2007 and that and then like my friends and all the people that I met you know sort of like through the queer scene and through partying um, and through po- and through like political organizing seeing very gender queer gender variant people that was the first time where I realized that it was something that was open to me. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about really like gender nonconforming, you know, um, kinds of identities. So not necessarily basing your gender identity or your transness around um, hormone therapy or surgery, but really just claiming gender queerness in one's body and you know they them pronouns and things like that um that was sort of really becoming visible to me in a way that it hadn't been before and then it took me a really long time to um feel comfortable being under that umbrella too so I had a lot of struggle with like where do I and it sort of comes, it, the like the question for me was always around legitimacy, you know, like there are people who have experiences where you know for a fact that, you know, um, you know, the gender of the body that you're in is not aligned with the gender that you feel you are and you have that strong sensibility and I never had that feeling. So, you know, I didn't experience, you know, what, sort of understood as like dysphoria or anything like that I was um I never questioned yeah I never questioned my biological gender and so it took me 
yeah, almost a decade to, um, I think, feel a sense of legitimacy that I was also in the trans spectrum. So I just want to go back a little bit um, to cover, to kind of cover our bases a little bit and get a, get a picture of your timeline. So, so you're in Ithaca throughout elementary school, middle school, and high school, or did you move? Yeah, so I was in Ithaca for, I think, we did a lot of moving when I was a kid. I was in Ithaca for f- kindergarten and first grade. And then we moved to Boston for second and third grade. And then we moved to Queens from fourth grade on. So I grew up, so I say I grew up in New York. (laughs) I say I grew up in Queens mostly because basically fourth grade through, and then um, junior high school, I I went, I was at a school in Queens. And then high school, I went, we were living in Queens. I went to school in the Bronx and then I moved away for college. So what um, what year did you move to Queens? Um, and also, what neighborhood in Queens were you in? You can take a, if you want to drink some tea, you can uh, take. Okay, no problem. Um, I'm trying to think. So I think it was 1993. I think it was either 1993 or 1994 that my parents got divorced and we moved from my mom and I moved to Queens we moved to Forest Hills and we lived in Forest Hills for most we lived in Forest Hills when I was in elementary school and then we moved to Rego Park which is just the neighboring neighborhood when I was in junior high school and we stayed in Rigo Park through high school. So can you tell me a little bit about what Queens was like at that time? Well, Queens is the best borough in New York City. So (laughs) I say that even as like a hardcore Brooklynite for now, 11 years that Queens is by far much cooler because it doesn't care that it's not cool and that's what makes it cool. Um, my neighborhood, the neighborhoods I grew up in, in Queens are the most globally diverse places in the city. I mean, you know, apart from like Elmhurst, which is just nearby or like Flushing, I remember in Rigo Park we had, and it's funny because it's like all different parts of the neighborhood, right? So you, you know, you cross Queens Boulevard and there's like seven other, seven communities on that side and this side but we had I remember there were Russian Jews Korean families Egyptian families um, Colombian families and people from all over Latin America Um, I'm trying to think Um, yeah I feel like that has been the lucky part of my life is that I've always grown up in really global communities and you know you meet people in the public school system in New York City from all over the world and also a lot of recently immigrated um, immigrated families and um, people who are coming from really different contexts so um, but there's also I think because 
because Queens is in is on Long Island, there's also like a sort of predominant culture too of um, uh, of Jewish families and and sort of the Long Island a sort of like Long Island experience, the like white Jewish Long Island experience, and that like definitely you know shaped my life I went to every bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah and like our whole lives were organized around that and you know no matter where you were from you like would go to every bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah and it was like the highlight the social highlight of life um, which I feel really grateful for um, but yeah I, you know I also had friends who were I had a lot of mixed race friends too both when I was growing up um, in uh, uh, like middle school and high school. So I remember I had one of my best friends in, in middle school was, you know, half Colombian on one side, half German on the other side. And yeah, I think I had a very sort of diverse upbringing and sort of a sense of, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it's sort of like uh, a very, the opposite of homogenous experience where it, there wasn't sort of a, you know, I, I, I think I'm lucky that I didn't necessarily feel like an outsider and that being mixed race, you know, like the tensions of that were more about where I fit within my family. But in in the cities that I grew up in, I felt, um, that there wasn't sort of one way to be and there wasn't sort of a, an oppressive dominant culture. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how Queens in like the 90s or even New York more broadly in the 90s is different from the New York today? You know, from your, from your like personal experience. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the... Giuliani sort of clean up, quote unquote, clean up of New York happened when I was in high school. So I remember kind of vaguely, but I do remember um, just how vibrant public life was in New York. Um, it just wasn't as corporate you know, especially in, in neighborhood neighborhoods, you know, you have family-owned businesses, and we used to just be running around on the streets. I mean, I grew up um, walking around the neighborhood with my friends from the time that I was in the fourth or fifth grade, or taking the subway, or in high school traveling around in these little, like, high school packs and we would travel all the way from Brooklyn to the Bronx to the west side to the east side of Manhattan. I mean, like, there was no limit to where we would go. And we would go on these adventures and, you know, always, you know, like, always with each other, always, like, taking care of each other. But, I mean, everything was very... Um, I think it must be so different now to grow up as a kid. I mean, also, I was talking about this the other day with some friends at work that I don't think there was so much of this sort of corporate culture built around childhood and children's entertainment and things like that. Like, 
I grew up going to see like NC-17 R-rated movies with my parents, like art house films, you know. I didn't like grow up necessarily on Disney. Um, there weren't sort of the same, there wasn't the same culture of children specific activities, you know. I'm sure that we went to, you know, I remember having birthday parties in Central Park and going to like Hard Rock Cafe or whatever with all my little friends, but um, I think there was a little bit less sort of corporate culture around how you raise your kids or what you do with your kids. So, and there was also, and I wasn't totally aware of this until after the fact and later, but, you know, the club scene was in its prime in the like early to late 90s. And I remember going to, the, there was I think there still is this like roller rink it's not really a roller rink it's just a little area in Central Park where people go with roller skates and um, dance to house music just like roll around and dance to house music and we used to do that you know on the weekends just go and watch them um, roller skaters and I grew up listening to like Delight and all of these amazing um house music stars I went like I remember like we used to go to concerts a lot that was like the main activity was going to concerts so I remember there was a Tower Records when I was in middle school there was a Tower Records on Broadway and before Green Day was even a thing <laughs> we went to a free concert in Tower Records and they were just debuting so like they no one ever heard of these people or whatever and I remember like I was so excited I had a friend um, who I used to go to concerts with, like, you know, as much as possible, and we'd go with our parents or whatever, and we went to see all these bands. But, I, yeah, I grew up listening to music, and, um, yeah, and I just, I, I'm, I'm sure that young people still do that too, but there's also a sort of a different music scene now where... Um, maybe maybe not but I I feel like it wasn't sort of kids specific the things that we would do um and I just think of it as like a public culture that you could just kind of wander around the city it wasn't necessarily it also wasn't securitized in the way that like, right exactly it wasn't safe but you know it's not safe now either it's just it also just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't sort of, um, I'm trying to think of like how we would spend our time. Um, public spaces were our like living room. So we would go to, in high school, we would always go to Union Square. That's where everybody would meet and you'd just go there. Um, and I don't even really remember spending as much time around school as much as like really in the city because everyone was coming from different parts of the city too so people lived so I went to high school in the Bronx and I went to Bronx Science which is a school that you have to test into and so people were coming from all over the city from way out in Queens and Brooklyn and um, all over the city so you would sort of like meet in Union Square <laughs> that was a sort of like central location so then you would commute from Queens to the Bronx? Yeah. Yeah. It was three hours a day. And can you um, explain a little bit that system for people who aren't 
from New York? Sure, yeah. So I used to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning before the sun rose and get on the R train and take the R train from, I'm trying to think of what the stop was now, like maybe 67th Street in Queens and then go all the way into Midtown Manhattan and pick up the four at 59th Street, Lexington Avenue, and take it all the way to almost the second or third to last stop in the Bronx at, um, I think it's, I can't remember if it's, um, it's the stop right near Lehman College. So Lehman College is sort of north of Bronx Science and there's, and it's a very sort of um, pretty area with like lots of trees and, um, it's not, can't remember if it's Fordham or not but yeah it was an hour and a half just one way <laughs> and um and I did it I can't believe that I did that every day <laughs> growing up can you explain a little bit why why did you have to commute there can you explain that testing system and that mm-hmm. yeah so that is the one tough thing about the New York City public school system. And I remember that my mom had moved us to this particular neighborhood in Queens because the schools were really good in that neighborhood. So in Forest Hills, Rigo Park, the public schools were were known to be good. And so that's why we moved there. Um, but, you know, in New York City, it's very hard to get a good education, especially if you are not wealthy. So there's this crazy system of testing into schools. And I remember that when it started in the sixth grade, so or it started in the fifth grade that you started testing into magnet schools. I remember Hunter has like a middle school that you test into from the fifth go, going into the sixth grade. Um, and we just learned, I mean, just really from a young age, it was sort of like, you're gonna be testing into schools and you just have to get into the best school possible. And it's really, it's cutthroat. I mean, it's a really, it's really tough and it's very hard to get a spot and there's not a lot of school, not a lot of magnet schools and there's also a ton of classism around um, local schools. So, you know, if you don't get into a good high school, it really, whether it actually shapes your life, I don't know, but the level of classism around education is really intense in New York at least for me growing up in New York so I remember I didn't get you know I didn't test into a a magnet school middle school but then we studied you know until our eyeballs were popping out of our faces for the high school tests and there was there's a three-tier system in New York so you know what are considered the best schools are Brooklyn Tech, Bronx Science, and Stuyvesant High School, in that order. (laughs) So also, you know, I was testing for these schools and like what you got into, you would get into either the first, second, and first, or all three. But of course, everyone would go to like sort of like the top tier of that selection. And I remember the day that I found out that I had gotten into Bronx Science, I came home to my mom and I showed her the letter that I had gotten in and I started sobbing because I hadn't gotten into the top school in New York City like the 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 cutthroat competition the sense of the sense of urgency and competition around um getting into a good school is really really intense and I don't really know how I did it it's amazing to think that I was so 
dedicated to studying because it's kind of mind-blowing at this point. So tell me a little bit about um, what Bronx High School, uh, Bronx School of Science, is that mm -hmm. what the name is? So then you have people from all five boroughs, including Staten Island, going there? Or technically, I don't remember anybody from Staten Island, but I'm sure that there was somebody from Staten Island, although that is really, that's a commute. It's like four hours. Yeah, like that's got to be hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, there were people from... Yeah, there were people from all over, um, kids from all over. Bronx Science was, and I think continues to be, actually the school population is predominantly Asian, East Asian. I think it's, I think it was something like 60 or 70% or something like that. Um, and it was, a, it's a school that specializes in math and science. So the com competition went through my, <laughs> through my, high school years where you were like testing into classes you know to get into AP level classes or higher level classes and then I remember my mom is a is a scientist and a linguist so I was on track for sort of like um studying um uh neuro not neurology um neurolinguist <clears throat> excuse me neurolinguistics and you know we sort of I tracked into you know research and science classes and then I thought maybe I would sort of follow suit with her and do sort of neurolinguistic studies and I remember I I mean oh my god it's it's amazing to think about it now but when I was a rising senior I think right like a junior going into senior year I won the American Academy of Neurology award for this project that I had like a sort of senior or like a yeah like a senior thesis kind of project it's crazy to think about it because I was doing this ERP study on adolescence I can't even what's remember. ERP ERP is um let me see if I can remember this right but it's basically um you measure electromagnetic impulses with a with a a cap on and you you know you can test for various things it's just sort of um, um, a methodology and adolescents of a certain age are sort of understudied in in generally in like um, ERP studies so I was and since all my friends were in that age group I can't remember what I was actually studying for like I can't remember what what my thesis was but um, yeah I studied this understudied population and then won this national <laughs> award for neurology neuroscience that's pretty cool yeah but I mean it's like just like a testament to how intense I think magnet public magnet schools are in New York City that you're just specializing so young um, and sort of already trying to track into a career in some way. Um, and then the very opposite of that experience was going to a liberal, liberal arts college. And yeah. So where did you go after high school? Um, I went to Brown University after high school and studied political science. And I think I was still sort of tracked in, like trying to figure out the legitimate, um, you know, the legitimate, course of study and it took me a really long time I feel like now I'm finally understanding how 
you know, how interdisciplinary my life is and that I, you know, I think it, and it's, it's funny because I feel like there's, there's an analogy between, you know, getting out of the confines of, you know, trying to prove to myself and prove to the world that I'm, you know, that I was like a smart young person with ambition. And there's, there's an analogy in my mind, sort of psychologically and emotionally between that and sort of loosening the reins around my gender identity. Because I think, you know, I sort of grew up with this, or I had some sort of conviction around what was legitimate and illegitimate. And where do you think that came from, that particular notion of illegitimate versus legitimate? I think it's just the inner workings of my mind. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone ever imposed anything on me. Um, but I think that I... Because that's it. It's mm. fascinating to me versus, like, usually people say, I wasn't authentic. But illegitimate, it, it's, you know, uh-huh. maybe maybe because you're the... Uh, a linguist child <laughs> it's like another level authentic you know yeah or I wasn't real but to say I wasn't legitimate has that's interesting I mean I yeah I think well I guess there's also something there for me about you know your core identity experience and how people perceive you and I think being mixed race that's such a tricky question and I think about how I always knew ethnically and racially that my mixedness and my um, you know, quote unquote ambiguity or really sort of like this passing privilege where like I could pass as many different sort of light-skinned ethnic combinations or whatever but no one ever really knew what exactly was going on and I guess I think about it in that way right that we have our we have our core identity and we have our core experience but that might not be legible to anybody outside of ourselves and I guess the legitimacy thing is more, I guess, sort of trying to, this idea of like trying to prove something or being, and but also I guess being seen as, being seen as something, being recognized as part of it. So yeah, I guess the, dis, just the slight distinction between authentic and legitimate for me is that authentic is, authentic is whatever your experience is, which is a shifting experience. But legitimacy is more about how you're perceived and how you're, how you're boxed into whatever you're boxed into and how the world treats you from the outside. And I feel like it took me a really long time to sort of loosen the reins around um, what I had to be versus what I could be versus what I am or, yeah. Or need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, like, in thinking about my gender journey, you know, a big part of the reason why it took seven years for me to really be comfortable in identifying as trans um, is because I think at first it was really 
hard for my mother to swallow the possibility that her daughter was not just a daughter. And we went through a long journey together, not necessarily a conscious journey with lots of conversation, but it took us a really long time to get comfortable. And I think I kind of hid, it was impossible to like, excuse me, to hide my life from her because my gender presentation was shifting in my early and mid twenties and I was dating trans people and I was dating genderqueer people. And so all of that was there, but we didn't necessarily talk about it. And I basically decided sort of in the end of my 20s, yeah, like when I guess I, I can't remember if I was 26 or 27, um, I decided to, to take testosterone. And that was a really tough, it took a really long time to get there, a really long time. Why, why was that? Why was it so hard to, to, to get there? Can you just say more a little bit about that? Well, for one, one of the first conversations that I had with my mom about pronouns, and I, at that point, um, used they, them pronouns, um, and we were having a contentious conversation about it. And at the time, I was also dating, um, you know, trans, genderqueer and trans people. And so there was this obvious sort of shift happening. And I just remember my mom saying, and I'm sure she didn't even really mean it um, as a hard and fast statement, but she basically said, you know, um, they, them, it's sort of not linguistically, you know, it, it, does, it doesn't make sense, you know, just by fact of language, it doesn't make sense. The conjugation doesn't make sense. Um, to have a plural <laughs> pronoun with a singular in a singular conjugation. Um, but I can deal with that. But whatever you do, don't take hormones. And I took that as, I, I really took that as like a rule. I didn't take it as a statement of fear about change or a statement of um, trepidation or any kind of like I didn't take it as an emotional reaction I took it as this is a condition for her yes there's gonna be a problem if you take hormones so for seven years I told myself it wasn't possible for me to do that and I, I remember even working with um uh there's a um a yoga teacher and um, um, herbalist in the trans community, Jacoby Ballard, who started Third Root um, or co-founded Third Root. Like I remember going to Jacoby and um, working with a, like an herbal, um, what is it called a tincture that was sort of a that was sort of addressing like the hormonal systems. And I thought, well, this is something that I can do. That's like not you know, not, not hormones from the doctor, like not, you know, sort of, um, like foreign elements to the body going in. It's something that like, maybe I could see some, you know, slight changes with my body. Cause it's, so there was the desire there 
um, the desire was there, but I felt like I, there wasn't. Can you explain what that desire was? Because earlier you had stated you didn't quite, you didn't f- experience dysmorph- uh, dysphoria, sorry. Right. So I w- was wondering if you could explain a little bit what, what your desire was when you were um, started to consider transitioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think I, I think it was first like an externalized desire. So I found myself, you know, drawn to and attracted to genderqueer people and, um, and I'm, you know, sort of the genderqueer, like the spectrum that I guess I was more on was sort of like genderqueer folks within like the dyke communities in Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, I think I externalized a lot of that desire by sort of, you know, dating trans people and dating queer people and dating gender queer people and seeing, um, sort of, you know, um, masculine presenting, um, dykes or masculine presenting people as like this, like, you know, um, beautiful, this sort of beautiful expression. And then, um, my one of my like first big queer relationships um uh was with someone who now identifies as trans but they were also going through all of these questions and they were a little bit older than me going through all of these questions in their own life and so I think we had um there was just like a lot of shared exploration around questions of identity but it also you know, I'm very aware of the fact that I come from like just a slightly older, you know, technically I'm a millennial, but like sort of the older spectrum of that. And um, the people, that, like my friends and my lovers at that time were all, um, even if they presented as trans, the question about whether or not they were trans was still um, there. It wasn't, it wasn't determined yet. And um, I think one major thing that really shifted my perspective about myself actually was um, getting to know Rusty and Chelsea, who you will interview, Rusty May Moore. And um, it's funny because I actually knew Rusty. Rusty was, is, the parent of my high school boyfriend but I didn't know her as well when I was in high school and we became friends when I was in my 20s and I started making a film about her in her house um, and this this house her home where she and her partner Chelsea um, essentially extended opened the doors of their house to the trans community mostly trans women mostly trans women who didn't have a place to go in the early 90s and so in discovering this whole history of this house that I had been to when I was in high school but like it was there was also some tension around um around that with with um her son so I didn't have like full exposure to this trans community when I was in high school and then I became really familiar with it when I was making a film about them in grad school. 
and um, I think one of the biggest impressions that I that was left on me was Chelsea's gender expression because she um, sort of identifies as a butch dyke and I think seeing trans people who really were not sort of quote-unquote gender conforming um, kind of opened it up for me you know because for me being trans is not about um, being a man you know it's not about I was always a little boy and there was a mistake Um, so really seeing the full um, range of expressions even to the point of like you know knowing like knowing how you identify and not um, in a way not uh, letting this question of passing you know become like the and I and I and I say this with full knowledge of you know passing is really um, a safety mechanism for people um, it can be the 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 barrier from violence or the barrier from um, physical harm but I think I was really inspired to to really become closer friends with these older trans women dykes who um, just were really in their bodies and and it just like it just sort of opened I think it opened it up for me so both like seeing them they're they're you know they're of an older generation for me and then um, and then building community with them also sort of intergenerational community um, and so yeah after I finished that making a film about them for grad school we all worked on this theater production it was this big collective trans queer collective theater project and then I then I felt really sort of comfortably situated in this very intergenerational um, trans sort of arts collective where I mean there were just every kind of expression was present and and then I think by the time you know I think by the time like this <laughs> the seven years passed or whatever from the time that I had had that really contentious conversation with my mom um, in my early mid-twenties um, I think my life has been so shaped by queer community has been so shaped by trans community that it really I don't know the question like there's nothing like there's no no one left to convince about it like it took me a really long time to even just recognize myself in my own community um and like this you know this idea of legitimacy that we were talking about right like eventually it just kind of kicked in because it's it, it, it's like you wake up and you're like completely surrounded by queer community everything you're doing is like queer and trans community queer and trans politics and you know activist politics and all of this and it's like yeah I think I think you're legitimate I think you can do whatever you want to do with your body and I think it's time to do whatever it is that you want to do with your you know with your health care but I also remember like I had been going to Callen Lord for years, the Callen Lord Community Health Center, 
I've been going there for years and I remember that like for years I wanted to have this conversation with my doctor about hormones and I could never bring it up. It was just too, um, it was too scary because I, I was convinced in my head that um, they would say, uh, you know, prove to me why you want to take hormones. Um, and I sort of like wasn't ready to, you know, it took me a really long time to um, work up the courage to potentially lie to my doctor and say, you know, I knew from the time that I was, I mean, I can't remember what I, I can't remember what the conversation was, but I didn't know like what I would say if someone, if my doctor asked me, um, you know, why, why do you want to take hormones? And I wasn't sure if I would be able to get a prescription for hormones if I said, I'm curious, or it's just what I want, or, you know what I mean? Like there's also a lot of just the medical um, industry makes it really hard for people to access what they need and want um, because you have to go through this process of proving your legitimately, I say that with quotations, legitimately transgender. And so was it, I know you don't remember your conversation with your physician, but was it was it difficult for you to access the resources that you need or... No, I think by the time I've worked up the courage to do it, I basically knew what they might ask. And I, and I had heard from, like, basically, you know, people, it's like everyone talks about this. You know, you talk about your experiences with other trans people and other genderqueer people, and you sort of figure out, like, how you work the system to get what you need. Um, and so I remember just saying, you know, I... I want to try hormones and I can't remember what the conversation was but it was very short and I think because Kellen Lord is such a supportive community health center for those kinds of services it was sort of just a matter of of um of talking to my doctor about it and then I think talking to like they have um trans health resources um team there too so yeah by the time I was ready to have the conversation it it really it wasn't it wasn't hard and I mean I had picked going to Callan Lord because I knew eventually I wanted to work up to that conversation so I knew it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a situation of asking you know just a general physician to start hormone treatment and during this process, now you had thought about this kind of in your early 20s, and it was, uh, as you said, like a seven-year process to kind of get to a place where you could be okay with it. I'm wondering, you know, you're, you're post-college mm-hmm. at that point, and I'm wondering, did you have any concerns about um, the workplace or how to uh, deal, negotiate that mm-hmm. in the workplace? Yeah, so I, at the time, was working at the Estrella Foundation, which is a global LGBTQ funder for activist groups around the world. And I think that was another big um, incentive, in a way, was that I knew that they had a really good trans health care plan. Um, I know that I remember that they had... Um, 
benefits for people who wanted to have surgery. And I had talked to a trans coworker who um, had gotten, you know, a lot of his health care and surgery and, and health needs like covered under their plan and had walked me through like, you know, all the benefits and how supportive, you know, the various means of support. So I think if I had been working somewhere else, I'm not sure I would have gone through the process at that point. Like I think that part of the timing of starting hormone therapy was because I was in a trans supportive, trans friendly environment. Um, in terms of healthcare and employment. Yes, but also just in terms of, I mean, more so in terms of the process of being on hormones and mm -hmm. physical changes and um, openness to being able to self-identify and, and tell your coworkers how you want to be <laughs> identified. All of that stuff, I think, in a different environment would have barred me from, from taking that all on. And I don't think that I was casual about the process, but I think I also felt fairly comfortable um, seeing other friends and lovers go through that process. And it's funny that I often think about how when I was in my early mid-20s, all the people that I was lovers with were all sort of like, you know, quote unquote, pre-T or pre-hormone. And now, you know, it's sort of like one by one you would see your friends and, and, and lovers and community members kind of go through the process of transitioning. And I think in a way, I feel like maybe I was on the later end of the, of the train, but um, I think you also learn a lot from other people's experiences when you're exposed to that. and. You know, luckily I've never, like I, I'm not in, in an isolated context. So I also got to see and learn about what that experience would be like before, you know, claiming it for myself. And I'm grateful that, that I was in a queer workplace because I think outside of that, outside of a queer friendly and queer workplace, I think it's really challenging I think a lot of people well I don't know in numbers but I imagine that it's much easier for example to transition get all your paperwork done and walk into a new job you know in the in the bigger world than it is to transition while you're somewhere um, I have friends who um, started hormone therapy and like have been going through really difficult experiences just having th their workplace and the institution where they work respond to their changes <laughs> rather than vice versa because it's sort of like well you you know you I don't know you you come in one way and it's like you know there's all this um, hullabaloo over it rather than just identifying that someone is going through a process and accommodating them um, I think it's super challenging so that was a big part was that I had that I was working at a queer foundation yeah um I guess I just want to ask you like two more questions and I think this I think we we can like kind of wrap up a little bit um um 
Let me think for a second. Hold on. We'll break. Um. Okay, I figured out what I want to ask you. <laughs> um, so you've talked a lot about how important being a part of uh, queer uh, communities of color in, in New York has been to you at really at every stage of your life. Um, and I'm just wondering, can you tell me a story of like one of your favorite memories as a, you know, young and now, you know, queer elder, no, I'm just kidding, um, <laughs> member of this uh, community. I had a friend actually call uh, one of my other friends who's 30 a queer elder. So now oh, it's a constant right thing now. where where we're constantly know. doing that. So I just wanted to. We don't get, we don't get to clean that just yet. <laughs> but if you could from tell my, me one of your, yeah. my young life or from my like 20s? Any, anything that comes to mind, just one of your favorite memories of life in the queer community in New York. Okay, I'll tell two little stories and one the first story is uh a this sort of memory of being young and queer but not naming it as such so I'm thinking about all of my friends in high school and you know how we used to sort of be in these little friend group packs and travel around the city and go from Queens to Brooklyn and all over the city and um, you know people were really artistic I remember we had a poetry club and one of my best friends and I had started this poetry club and that was like so much a part of like our friend group and we were making these little magazines and they were like really cool magazines too and um and I remember that young life being being very queer but we didn't name it that way you know so I remember sort of basically being in love with <laughs> with my boyfriend's best friend who also was queer, mixed race, Filipina, had no idea she was gay, um, was like super butch and had like this amazing humor. She was just like super sexy and so funny and was not out at all. And um, I remember basically she and my boyfriend at the time who's now out and queer um and I all slept together and it was this really queer experience and I feel like we didn't have the the words or the vocabulary for it but we all knew that our desires were not sort of boxed in in any way and I and I think about I sort of think about like my early like sexual life with a lot of um kind of admiration because I feel like the um the pressure to you know identify in a certain way and how you identify sexually and all of that is like so much on young people and thinking about the sense of safety that I felt within my friend group you know which was really mixed in all these different ways um 
but that there wasn't this sort of match to match situation it was like we were we were friends and we were family and we were comfortable with each other and then it sort of naturally extended to you know sexual loving sexual relationships and I I feel like that's so rare <laughs> and that's not even necessarily like what that's not even like that that loving openness isn't and friendship is not even necessarily a part of gay cruising culture so I have this fondness <laughs> for the, like the physical and emotional love of all of my that I shared with so many of my friends in high school and then I think once we went to college we all came out <laughs> like it was that turning point of going Wait, orientation week <laughs> <laughs> yeah I went to well first I went to like the the students of color pre-orientation so I was still sort of like more situated in my like racial identity than I was in my like queer identity but I think by the time we all got to college like then it was clear I I, my friends make fun of me to this day that I stood up at like pre-orientation and said that I was bisexual <laughs> and mixed race and I was like diva central and wearing this little crop top with that had like and this is like very 90s this is like from 8th street where you would get all of your raver gear which I was super into like we would like I was a preteen or a teen when like raver culture was a big thing but we had all of the outfits and I was wearing this little crop top that was like in the in the aesthetic style of a visa mastercard but it said diva on it so clearly a queer kid like walking in and I was like I'm bisexual um so yeah it's like the 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 like the terminology is so funny right like you you like bisexual is like the first way of saying I'm queer and then it like takes a while to be like my queerness is also my transness and like all of those formulations sort of take a while um I think another good memory of um being in community was yeah it was sort of like um in my mid to late 20s just going out in Bed-Stuy going to house parties in Bed-Stuy um and back then <laughs> everyone actually could afford to live in Bed-Stuy so like people you really would just walk all through the neighborhood and you would go to people's houses and you'd hang out and you'd go to these really great dance parties and there was a really awesome party called Sweat that um, this person Kane who's still around and um, is sort of known for um, their um, like they basically do like they're like run a barber shop and you know they're they're still around but they used to throw these amazing um, party dance parties at Outpost on Fulton and that's where I just met that's how I met so many people and I'm not saying that that culture doesn't still exist. I'm sure it does, but this was pre-app, like really pre-app. And um, there just wasn't the same kind of literal filtering that you do to meet strangers. Like I think 
you would meet because you would go out dancing. So there were a couple of places. There was like that party, Sweat at Outpost, and then it moved around the, around Brooklyn. There was this fantastic bar called Grand um, on Lafayette and Grand. Oh yeah, we used to call it Grand 275. I used yeah. to work at the Senegalese restaurant next door to that oh, place. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, which is now, Grand Dakar, which is that's it. right. Yeah. Oh yeah, that place was so good too. Right, so Grand. And actually, that was like kind of, I'm thinking about it now, like Grand was, was, yeah, was like the. It's a black queer bar, too. Yes. Yeah. Black owned um, queer bar and restaurant. And, um, and also, again, like very intergenerational, which I wonder if that's still mm-hmm. a thing now. But like basically, my boss at the time was best friends with the owners of the bar and we would go there all the time and she her partner is a musician and so we would just hang out and go to this bar and it was right around the corner like very close to my house and so we would party there and we would just go there you know as like a spot in the neighborhood but um I was in my 20s and I was partying with like 40 year olds and 50 year olds and musicians and artists in this like amazing kind of community of um, predominantly black queer artists, but also, you know, um, you know, uh, POC folks of different race and races and ethnicities. And, um, I, yeah, I feel like that those spaces were super formative for me, super formative. And that was the place of understanding myself and my desire but also a place of learning my my politics learning about um queer history learning about um black and poc history in the u.s learning about um arts and culture and like yeah and very offline (laughs) all of it was super super offline I mean like you'd go into the bar and you'd just talk to anybody who was there um and you would dance for hours and like I think that's also part of it is like it's it's still like the relics of like the house music scene and in New York City which still goes on strong and like yeah just the like the affinity that comes out of like dance celebration and like queer celebratory queer community okay i i um i think i want to end on that note i think that's a good note to end um is there anything else that you wanted to share or comment on that you can think of um i can't think of anything specific yeah yeah all right thank you thank you